calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. This is week two of a three-week series I'm calling The Enterprising Investor Interview. I got the idea from one of my favorite podcasts, The TED Interview, where Chris Anderson invites some of the most compelling TED speakers onto the show to go deeper into their ideas than was possible during their short TED Talk. On today's episode, my conversation with Rob Martirana about his popular series on how to read financial news. We dig into confirmation bias, political bias, coronavirus, and much more, including how a framework for reading financial news can help us maintain our objectivity during a crisis. Rob is a CFA charter holder and founder of Right Blend Investing, a fee-only RIA. Next week, Barbara Stewart will share insights from a decade of research into women and finance. And now, on with today's show. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Rob Martirana, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you joining us today from the state of New Jersey, uh, which is here in the United States, and that is one of the states that's been particularly hard hit uh, by COVID-19. So at the outset, I just want to acknowledge how much coronavirus has really turned your world upside down. So thank you again for taking time to speak with us today. So I've been really looking forward to our conversation, Rob, because we're going to tackle a few things that um, are tough topics. And I think mm -hmm. some listeners may even find them a little bit uncomfortable. We're going to talk about emotions, uh, political bias, confirmation bias. So um, let's dive right in. So we're sitting down virtually, of course, to have a conversation about uh, reading financial news. And you've written a lot about this. Um, we're having a conversation in really what is uh, an extraordinary time. Uh, as anyone who's listened to this knows, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and now more than ever, we need to read the news with a, a clear eye uh, about our emotions and our biases and especially our tendency towards confirmation bias and political bias. So I really would love to start our conversation here and why this is so critical, um, whether you're an investment professional or, or any other kind of professional. Um, to me, it sounds like it's a lot easier said than done. So tell us how we go about this. Sure, and thank you. It is much easier said than done, especially at a time like this, because our emotions do play a large part as people and as investors. And if I could share a personal experience, my wife works in an ICU in New Jersey, and she has seen a lot of death, unfortunately. And it is very difficult to control your emotions. I was doing my research as an investor, uh, reading a big, long McKinsey report on coronavirus. And on page 17, it said that the most dangerous occupation is healthcare workers, and the most dangerous things they can do is intubate a patient with COVID. And that is what my wife does at night. And so that emotionally was very difficult to handle. And here I am managing money, trying to read the news objectively. 
And I think we'd all acknowledge that at times like this, when it turns your world upside down, it is difficult to keep an even keel. So that is where I'd start with our emotional biases. We all have them, and then we have to put it aside to think clearly and read the news and say, look, what is happening, not what do I feel should happen? What do I want to happen? Let's start with what actually is happening. And that is a challenge for all of us just to think clearly. Yeah, and I know that you're both an advisor and a portfolio manager, and you really try to aim to be impartial in what you're reading. So give us some idea of how you go about that. No, it's a good question because being impartial, we have to deal with our pride. Uh, confirmation bias is a long 25 cent word, in my opinion, for pride. We all have pride, I'm no different, so I need to manage my confirmation bias. The way I look at pride is that it puts blinders on our eyes and earplugs in our ears. So we don't quite see everything, we don't hear everything. The message gets through, but a little bit muted. And so if we wanna see things more clearly, we have to read a variety of sources. And the way I like to tell people um, is that wherever I read it, if I read two plus two equals four, I need to take that seriously. So we need to have a framework for reading the news. And as you mentioned, I've published uh, extensively on this, ridiculously long articles at the CFA Institute discussing the framework. Because a few years ago, I was just reading more and more and learning less and less. So I decided to sit down, interview some of my peers who were having the same problems, and just walk through and say, well, gee, how do we do this thing? How do we read all this news without being overwhelmed? Yeah, overall, does a show really good work because it feels like we have a sort of a fire hose. And I know that you saw a poll that we published back in 2015 where we were asking professionals sort of, you know, what is their biggest professional challenge? And I think it was something like 61% said information overwhelm. So mm -hmm. we feel overwhelmed um, by information. Um, a lot of us want to know how do we read smarter? How do we read faster? So perhaps you could sort of walk us through your framework uh, for those people who are listening and they want to get smarter about how they're reading, but there's just so much out there. Where do they start? And I'd start first with having a context for what it is that you're trying to accomplish, something that is practical. And I say that as somebody who's speaking from a basement in New Jersey, uh, my wife and son are upstairs, I do not pretend to read five newspapers before 6 a.m. every day. That is just, it's impossible. I don't pretend to understand every asset class in the world at every moment in time. So you have to start with, well, what is my job for clients? What is my job? What are my obligations to my company? And what can I do in the time that I have? So you have to start with something that's practical. And that's kind of even before you begin the, pro the, uh, the framework itself. But the first step is to understand consensus. Uh, financial journalists are very good at their jobs for the most part. They're limited, they're time pressed just like everybody, everybody is. But there is a consensus out there. And let's say you're studying uh, economics and you want to talk about the debt levels in the United States. That's become a hot topic. And coronavirus has actually affected that because coronavirus has led to a lot of deficit spending. So you say, okay, well, what is consensus? So you start there with consensus. You move on to, well, what is the narrative? What is, or the narratives that are out there? And what is the frequency of the stories on it? Right now, actually, deficits aren't a very big story. That may change over time. Uh, in the first quarter, China was number one story in terms of frequency. And then you want to look at frequency and framing of different narratives. How is the story framed? Uh, that will change depending upon the media outlet that you look at, uh, the, the story that you're looking at. Uh, 
So once you move from consensus to the narratives, then you want to separate the narratives from the noise because there will be extremist uh, articles on both sides of every issue. People will come out with extreme views because extreme views will get the most page views. And unfortunately, the media gravitate towards extreme views for that reason because it gets a lot of page views and it is a business. We, we all have to uh, accept that. Then once you've done that, let's say you, know, you have a view about deficit spending, coronavirus, you start to ask open-ended questions. Well, where would this lead? Is this sustainable? Wherever the questions take you, but you ask your own questions, open-ended questions. Uh, after that, you go deep, you concentrate. And the last step is avoiding memory contamination. It's a little bit geeky of, uh, it's a geeky phrase, but it's worth spending at least 30 seconds on. Memory contamination happens when you can't really separate the true claims from the false claims in your own mind. And the easiest, easiest example I give is apples. If I start talking on and on about apples and I start saying these true things with false things, after a while, you can't really remember. Apple's good for you. I mean, I heard somewhere that they're bad if you eat too much. There's arsenic in the pits. And all this information gets shoved into your head. And before you know it, you've read so much information on it that is of dubious quality that you really can't tell anymore what you believe about them. And you get very confused. That's memory contamination. If you have a framework, and I, I, I would encourage people to go to the CFA Institute, just Google the topic. You can get it for free in ridiculous depth and detail, if you like. But if you don't have a framework, you're just gonna bounce around from whatever catches your attention at one moment, and it goes into your head, and you don't really develop, you don't get any smarter. And you spend enormous amounts of time, but you're not really learning anything, and you're certainly not helping yourself or your investment clients. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to take a, another sort of look at the article that you wrote most recently that was published, uh, How to Read Financial News coronavirus, confirmation bias, and political bias. Let's start and perhaps first with confirmation bias and go a bit deeper on that. And then I'd love to talk a little bit more about political bias because I feel that that's a, it's an especially important topic uh, now. And I think it's gonna get more and more important as the years go by. Oh, thank you. That's a very good question. Coronavirus rapidly became politicized far faster than I ever thought that it would. And uh, Vanessa Otero of Adfontes Media, who I refer to in the article, she does a way better job than I will ever do on political bias. She ranks she's, uh, media sources according to their political bias. So that would be on the horizontal axis. Are they to the left or the right? And on the vertical, are they credible? Are they reasonable sources? So let's say you read about coronavirus in the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and they fall all over the map and they make certain statements about how likely the virus is to uh, expand in a given country, how contagious it is, and what uh, precautions we should take. Okay, that's reasonable. You expect people to be all over the place. Well, what Vanessa Otero identified a few months ago is that people's precautions, their medical precautions, were different based on their political views, which doesn't objectively really make any sense because if a virus is either contagious or it's not, and whether you wear a mask or you don't, should be based on objective data and objective facts. And that is not what we found at all. And I found talking to clients, their political views have a very heavily, a very heavy influence on what they actually believe our precautions should be. And that, as Vanessa said, that's just nuts. That just doesn't make any objective sense. Uh, two plus two equals four or it doesn't. 
data either exists or it doesn't. We can disagree about how to interpret the data, certainly. We can have that discussion. But as far as observing the data, um, we have to start with some objective view. And I believe that her work on media bias really helps us to do that because she acknowledges, yes, sources are on the left and on the right. They differ in degree on how left and right they go. They di differ in quality, whether they're very credible or not credible. But she does a very reasonable job. She, her methodology is sound and robust. And until I find a better way to do it, I'm relying on her work. So we all have biases. I think we, we, we're probably reluctant to admit that we do. Um, confirmation bias is rife. Overconfidence is bi uh, rife. Uh, political bias is mm -hmm. rife. So maybe the first step is that we, we, we acknowledge that we have those biases, but what can we do to try and mitigate the, the effects of bias? Great question. Uh, the best thing we can do is to stress test our ideas. You take a hypothesis, Let's say I have some hypothesis about deficit spending in the United States caused by coronavirus, some hypothesis that it's good, bad, or indifferent. Let's say it's it will not cause interest rates to rise in 2020-21. That's my hypothesis. Then I go out to some credible sources, some friends I develop in the business. I've done this for 35 years, and we all have friends in the business or people who will tell us when we have spinach in our teeth or that we're just doing something stupid. And you say, this is my hypothesis. What am I missing? Is it reasonable? Is it unreasonable? They'll confirm some things that you do and they'll conflict with other stuff. They'll say, well, I, I agree with you here. I disagree with you there. And your friends will be happy to point out your mistakes for free. So I find stress testing ideas to be very valuable. So one of the conversations I hear a lot about these days is uh, how coronavirus will affect our behavior. Like what's the new normal now? What, mm. How will things look different in the future? And so one question I have is, uh, what do you think uh, people are both overestimating and underestimating about behavioral changes that we'll see as a result of coronavirus? Any thoughts on that? Yes. and. Um... I, I want to quote Arthur C. Clarke, who always said that uh, change is overestimated in the short run and underestimated in the long run, that we underestimate um, long-term changes from coronavirus. I think that after 9-11, good example, we have made permanent changes to the security infrastructure of the United States, permanent social changes in how we perceive threats, monitor threats, and so on. And we accept that. That's Going to the airport is a different experience. We accept that. We accept changes to privacy. Like it or not, we th there have been changes. With coronavirus, people have overestimated in the short run, oh, the world, the sky is falling, things are collapsing, we have no way out of this, depression. Okay, that was the initial phase because we had no real information. We did not have data from different countries, from different uh, population groups, uh, different places that had different responses in terms of the restrictions they put on people. We didn't know mortality rates, morbidity. Lots and lots of data was missing. Now it's moved from uncertainty to risk and risk management, and we can do things in, with, with risk. In the short run, people got way, way too panicked about this was the end of the world. We've never seen anything like this. In the long run, it will lead to very major changes. The very fact that we're doing this uh, via video, uh, that's well established now that Zoom video and other video media are going to be accepted by virtually every business professional that you're going to have to get used to being on video and speaking to people, whether it's from your basement or from a studio or wherever, that's life in the new normal. 
Some of the other changes are harder to predict, like how people will accept these social restrictions and how that will play out. And it does become political very rapidly. It is already shaping the 2020 elections. Uh, but I do think that we have to be prepared for very deep long-term social change. And the one that I'm most concerned about, I'm a small business owner and it, you know I own the business I run. And I'm seeing a lot of small businesses go under and it's painful. Uh, it is very painful to see a, a lot of places that do not have you know, two months of cash on hand. And we're seeing consolidation throughout many, many industries. And that is difficult. It, it is just something that for Main Street USA, complete disconnect from Wall Street, that for large companies, they're, they're flourishing, small ones are not. Well, since you raised the topic of running your own RIA, maybe I can ask you a bit more about that in the sense of what changes do you think will happen to the RIA landscape as a result of this? Well, you're going to have to get out of your box. You have to, you you simply cannot publish things and be the sage on the stage and impress people with your wonderful writing. They want feedback. They want immediate feedback. I myself have done much more self-publishing since this whole the since coronavirus started because it simply takes too much time to publish on platforms. Clients want immediate feedback. They don't need it to be perfect, but they need to know what you're thinking. They want more phone calls, emails, and of course, every client is different in the way they receive information, but you have to be much faster in terms of, uh, of the way that you respond. The idea that you sit back and you say, well, I'm going to wait until an expert from the home office says something, that is problematic because clients want to speak to you and they want your opinion and you're going to have to be ready to give that to them on the fly. So when clients call your email, you saying, hey, Rob, I've never seen anything like this before. Help me out here. How do I make sense of what's going on right now? Put it in perspective for me. How do you do that? How, what lens do you apply? How do you put perspective around this? What are you telling your clients? Well, one of my clients owns a barbershop and I've written about him on the CFA Institute so I can talk about this. And I figure if I cannot explain it to the owner of a barbershop, I, I just, I don't understand it myself. And I tell him, look, you've had this huge hit to revenues, you're temporarily closed. Is the value of your business zero? No. You will reopen, it will be different. If you look at any business, the value does not go to zero. In the short run, yes, huge hit to profits, cash flow, and balance sheet. Things that didn't matter, like balance sheet, now matter a lot, and cash flow matter a lot. But the value of your business does not go to zero. Will you do things differently? Yes. You're going to be wearing masks in the barber chair for a while. You may get an infrared scanner where you take temperature somebody's forehead, do stuff like that. But it doesn't go to zero. And if you get caught up in what the market is doing without an understanding of profits, the profits come from businesses, then you're going to get lost. You're just going to focus on all the panic stuff on TV. You will overreact. You'll say, sell everything. And then you will wind up selling at the bottom and you will destroy your retirement in the process. Mm -hmm. That's sound advice. So I know you've been an investment analyst for several decades. And in one of our conversations, you spoke about uh, being a young oil analyst. Uh, and you, you said something uh, in our conversation that, that really sort of struck me. You said, prices move first, narratives come second. Um, just explain that a little bit more for the listeners. A great question. The prices are moving right now in the market. 
And then the reporters and journalists have to come up with an explanation that when you're in journalism, I've been in it, you have to come to people and say, what's going on? Uh, oil prices went below zero recently. We must give people an explanation. Some of the initial ones were way off base and were just wrong, but you have to publish something. Prices always move first and then you get a narrative. Markets anticipate. And that is very difficult for people to understand. They wanna feel that they can get this narrative, that narratives explain things. Unfortunately, most of the time narratives come from things. In my second day uh, as a research analyst, I used to work at Value Line in New York City. Second day on the job, I got a call from the Wall Street Journal about oil prices. I was quoted the next day on page two, and I can't even remember what I said if it made sense. But they called because, well, I was an analyst, I was objective, I knew something. But they called because prices moved and they had to have a story. Now, I'm not beating up on financial journalists by any means. It is an extremely difficult job to do financial journalism in the internet age. People expect you to have this incredible global consensus at your fingertips and to be, be able to explain why the Saudis and the Russians are in this mutual suicide pact over oil production that makes no sense, crashing prices, and they want you to have that, explain that in 15 seconds. It can't be done. I mean, it's simply, you cannot be accurate and brief about global oil prices in 15 seconds with no preparation. You can't. So what we default to is, well, prices must be right. Therefore, whatever the explanation that comes up, well, okay, I guess that makes sense. Uh, Robert Schiller, the economist, I think he refers to this as narrative economics. Whatever story comes out, the narrative, well, must be true. Um, and I do write in the CFA, uh, the series of articles that I wrote about what happened to oil prices in 1994. I was managing energy money at, uh, at Schroeder's then. And it, oil prices made a huge move, uh, 30%, I believe it was 40% down, 25% up, something like that, in one year. And everybody talked about OPEC. That's all they talked about was OPEC. That was the narrative. And I showed in the article, it was Mattel Gesellschaft. They had 600 million barrels of oil futures they had to dump it on the market. That crashed prices. But the crazy thing, Lauren, is if you go back and do a little financial sleuthing now, some history, that story has disappeared. If you look in Wikipedia explanations, New York Times, oh, it was OPEC. Like, well, no, factually, you can show that it was Mattel Gesellschaft. I, I, I've never had anyone push back and say, no, I, that, that doesn't make sense. That is a public story. And prices drive the narrative. When you lacked a narrative, Mattel Gesellschaft, by the way, at that point, it was private. It was not public until December of 1993, 94. So you didn't have that information. Uh, right now, there are things moving the markets, whether it's oil. Uh, there's a huge risk parity trade that went wrong in the first quarter that's been driving things behind the scenes. There's a lot of stuff. And then as time goes by, we'll eventually find out what happened. But you have to understand that what you read in the media is always going to be driven by, well, prices move, and then we get a narrative. And in my first article, I described it as a, a crying baby, that price financial news is like a crying baby. I, I, I said that my baby is crying, and I don't know why. That's where I start from. Well, I hear my baby crying. I don't know why. Is the diaper wet? Is he hungry? Obvious explanations. And then you go to some of the less obvious, and then you just go to bizarre things like, you know, is there a full moon? Or I, I have no idea. Why is he crying? 
and you do your best with the information you have. And financial news is an awful lot like that. You first have the price movement. That's the noise, just like a baby crying. It goes up and down. And and usually the narrative, the consensus narrative is right. The baby is hungry or tired or cranky or whatever, but not always. And you have, and as time goes by, you go deeper and deeper into the narrative to try to find out what's right. But I've learned over the years, the narrative is always going to be incomplete. Right. And you have to accept that and move on. So we're going to have to wrap up there. But before we do, um, I always like to ask uh, in this era of COVID-19, my sort of array of sunshine questions. So my final question for you is, um, what is giving you hope right now? The number one thing would have to be my neighbors where I live in Hawthorne, New Jersey. My wife and I were under quarantine very early in this. We were tested for COVID in mid-March and we were under quarantine and they brought us food and just a simple thing like bringing, you know, bringing food and sorry, I'll get all choked up, but you don't read about that kind of stuff necessarily about the sharing among neighbors. And what does give me hope is seeing people just treat their neighbors the way I would want to be treated. And I've seen a lot of that. And the best advice I ever got about that was to uh, love your neighbor, love the neighbors you actually do have, not the neighbors you wish you had. And when something like coronavirus hits, you appreciate the neighbors, your actual physical neighbors. Uh, my next door neighbor got pizza for us. And I really appreciate that. Right. And I think there are a lot more stories like that that we're going to read uh, as the days go by. Yes, I think we need more small or large acts of kindness. So, Rob, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. And to you, your family and everyone who's listening, please stay safe out there. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.